Okay, so uh, today we'll try to talk, um, say, a lot of different things about the Aspen Papers. I hope you guys liked it. Um, if you liked it, there are various reasons you might have liked it. If you didn't like it, um, it might be that you terribly misunderstood it. <laughs> um, but if you liked it, there are lots of different reasons to like it. Um, one reason is how amazingly atmospheric it is. Um, that is that, in a sense, what you get is a description of a few months in Venice from spring to summer to the coming of autumn, um, in which almost nothing happens except that the narrator, um, at least as far as what the narrator wants, except um, that the narrator keeps wanting things or wanting a particular thing, namely the precious papers. Um, and... Um, Spoiler, doesn't get them. Um, and not only does he not get them, he doesn't, in the end, know what's in them. Um, and he tries at, at various points to convince himself um, that there is nothing important in them and that there's something important in them. Um, but in the meantime, this is all occurring as he's taking in Venice and taking in Venice both um, walking around and um, getting a feel for it and living in the palazzo of the um, Mrs. Um, Bordereaux's and um, having just an amazing and fantastically Henry Jamesian atmosphere. Um, so as far as what happens, there's not that much. As far as what happens, though, there's also a lot that happens. So one thing that I wanted to do was just give you, if you read footnotes or um, the intro or anything like that, you'll have some sense of who um, Jeffrey Aspern was in reality to the extent that we can say there's a reality behind a fictional character. In this case, there is. We were talking yesterday, talking the last couple of days about the relation of a fictional world to our world and where the um, interface between a fictional world and what's true in a fictional world and our world occurs. Um, one thing about a fictional world is most, although not all fictional worlds, but most fictional worlds um, <laughs> seem to be on Earth. Um, and um, therefore, the city of Venice is a city where fictions can be set in. Um, the Miss Borderos don't exist, and presumably their um, palazzo doesn't exist. Um, but um, places like that do, places like that where James himself lived, um, places that James knew, gardens like that do. Um, if you're thinking of gardens, of course you will think of Paradise Lost because gardens. Um, and uh, James wants you to, if you ask yourself as... <laughs> it's always at least somewhat worth asking um, who corresponds to whom in Paradise Lost. Um, the narrator corresponds to Satan. Um, he is the tempter. He is the one who has entered into a garden um, in order to try to get something out of the innocent Miss. Did you guys read it? The, the, book, the version I ordered was the Oxford, but I'm not convinced that that's what the bookstore got. Um, did they get the penguin? Okay, and so the character that you read about was Miss Tita or Miss Tina? Tita. Okay. Um, that's a slight pity. I'll talk a little bit about that. It's only a slight pity. Um, James um, published a novel first in 1888. 
Um, and then in, at the beginning of the 20th century, he revised all his work. Um, the joke about Henry James, if you've read other Henry James novels, you will get a sense of this. Um, the joke, actually, I'm not sure you're going you're to be rolling on the floor laughing your ass <laughs> off at, at this joke. Um, but the joke about Henry James is that there are three stylistic periods in his life, James I, James II, and The Old Pretender. Oh, well. Um, the old pretender was the son of um, James II, who was a pretender to the throne of England. That's why. Um, and late Henry James is very, very hard Henry James. Uh, late Henry James is James has become stylistically insane. And he's probably in the genuinely hardest writer um, in the English language, harder <laughs> than Joyce, harder than others. Um, and um, what he did in the early, in the first decade of the 20th century was um, a publisher decided to put out all his work, which was a ton. He said, no, not all of it, but a lot of it. And it's still a ton. But he revised everything he'd written. And his revisions are often for the worse, but sometimes for the better. Um, and his revision of the Aspirin Papers is a revision for the better. The revisions, the tinkerings are fairly minor, but there's one major one at the very end. The last sentence has changed in a way that's very clarifying and interesting. So um, that's something that we'll talk about. 1888, when the novel first came out, and that's the version that you've read, um, then it, one revision is that he changes the name of Miss Tita to Miss Tina. T-I-N-A instead of T-I-T-A. So that's how, in the future, when you need to know which version of the aspirin papers you happen to have picked up wherever you are um, in the airport because you needed something to read on your way to Venice or whatever, you'll know just by looking at the character's name, whether it's Tita or Tina. Um, James changes it to Tina. Um, so in 1888, um, James writes his novel. He had heard a couple of years earlier that um, Byron's and Shelley's very close friend and lover, she was probably a lover of both of them, um, Claire Claremont, um, had only recently died in 1879. So Claire Claremont lived into her 80s. Byron and Shelley both died, by, um, Byron at the age of 36 and Shelley at the age of 29. They both died young. Um, so they had both been dead 60 years or more, um, more actually, when James wrote this <laughs> novel. But it would have been possible, he never met Claire Claremont, but it would have been possible for him to have met her. Um, and he was astonished to find that she was still alive. As you, it's, it's like finding, um, as uh, happened last week, um, that the last surviving cast member of Citizen Kane um, just died last week. So Citizen Kane is a movie from um, 1941, and um, there you could still meet people who had been in it up until last week. Now you can't. Um, so um, James was astonished to find that he might have, when he was in Venice, have met this person from another world, from another age. Um, and um, Juliana is based on her, on Claire Claremont. Um, so Jeffrey Aspern is American, 
Um, if you notice his initials J.A., um, they're the J.A. of James, of Henry James. And there's a sense in which James is thinking about what he's always thinking about, which is the relationship of American literature to European literature, the relationship of Americans to Europeans. Um, what does it mean for Americans to go back to Europe or to go to Europe um, if they've never been there and see in European culture something that Europeans themselves couldn't see because they were too used to it. So James had a sense that America was the brash new um, culture, the culture of money, the culture of capital, the culture that was going to lead to um, what his contemporary Henry Adams called the American century, um, and that there was a sense in which Americans were coming to own Europe um, partly because they were less cultured than Europeans. So in Jeffrey Aspern, James takes a composite of the two great and best friend poets, um, Lord Byron and um, Percy Shelley, um, and turns them into the American poet James Aspern. Um, and James Aspern spends his time, spends time in Europe as James himself did, but is American, but nevertheless as a poet he's based on the lover or lovers. It's not absolutely clear that Shelley was also a lover of Claire Claremont, although it's very likely. Um, the lover or lovers of Claire Claremont, who, as I say, um, had been alive very recently still when James wrote the novel. So Juliana is based on Claire Claremont, although even older. Um, she is, if you try to figure out how old she is in the novel, um, she's probably in her early 90s. She's um, lived in Europe for three quarters of a century, the narrator tells us. Yeah. So why does it say she's 150? She's not. That's um, a joke? <laughs> yes, it's a way of... Women don't tell their ages um, in the 19th century. Um, Jane Eyre does, but in general, people don't. So what happens is um, people will... St you'll still find people who will do this. Um, people who are... Um, who are elderly will, um, it, it's just a common kind of cliche thing to say that I'm 100 years old or I'm 150 years old. And basically it's, it's, it's like saying now, oh, I'm a dinosaur. Um, so how old she actually is, people don't live to be 150. And they didn't in the 19th century either. Um, and um, so it's just a way of saying I'm very old um, without being more specific about that, or that she's very old without being more specific about it. We don't know the ages of anyone. Um, and James is actually, um, on principle, he tends to be very, very vague in descriptions of characters and um, in giving them their ages. Um, he's particularly vague, and this is something that he loves. It's something we'll return to when we get to Invisible Man as well. He's particularly vague on characters' names. Um, so that Miss Tina, Miss Tita, fine. Um, but the narrator takes a false name, and then he tells Miss Tina, as I shall call her, is his true name, and we never find out either of those names, either his false or his true name. Um, so we know he has a name, um, there's no question about that, but he has a name only in a fictional world, and it's a name that we are never told. Um, so for us, he has no name. He's clearly not Henry James, um, since A, Jeffrey Aspern doesn't exist, B, Henry James did not attempt to find the papers of this non-existent um, figure, and C, Henry James is hardly approving 
of the narrator of the Aspern Papers. Um, he disapproves pretty strongly. Um, and that's something that it's important to see. And that he, Henry James, understands a whole lot um, and wants us to understand a whole lot about this story that its narrator does not understand. Um, maybe one way to, to, to um, focus on that is to look at how James um, changed the end of the novel. Um, Hannah, you tell me there's a footnote on that, right? Um, so if you look at... So you should have a footnote or something on it in your book. Um, but if you... Um, Read the end of your version. Someone read the last sentence. When I look at him, I should bring that the loss of letters becomes Yeah, so, um, sorry, I'm just trying to find it here. Um, almost there. Um, so what's happened is Miss Tina has burnt the letters. Um, and he now has sent her. It's, uh, there's actually a, uh, an interesting little moment here. He tells her that he sold a portrait of Jeffrey Aspern and for more money than he thought that he would be able to get for it. And he sends the money to Miss Tina. Um, and then this is um, in the last paragraph. Um, Just, well, I'll just read the last paragraph as it exists in the um, 1908 version. It took a long time, she says. There were so many. So tell me the differences. If, there are, if there's anything significant, mention it. It took a long time, she said. There were so many papers to burn, um, in other words. Uh, the room seemed to go round me as she said this, says our narrator, and a real darkness for a moment descended on my eyes. When it passed, Miss Tina was there still, but the transfiguration was over, and she changed back to a plain, dingy, elderly person. Now, one question we can ask is, is she older or younger than the narrator? Um, we don't know. There is no indication either way whether she's older or younger than the narrator, partly because we don't know the narrator's age and partly because we don't know her age. Her age, though, matters. Um, that is something that matters in this novel for reasons that we'll get to. Um, at least a rough sense of her age matters. A rough sense of Miss Juliana's age matters because she um, is mentioned as, as um, a subject of talk and possible scandal in 1825, which is after the death of Byron and Shelley and in this novel after the death of um, Jeffrey Aspern, and the scandal is about her relationship with Aspern. That was true of Claire Claremont. She was the subject of scandal and of gossip in 1825 as well. So this novel is set roughly in the mid-1880s, um, and so it's a good 60 years later. So, and she, she Miss Juliana, has lived um, in Europe for 75 years, and she went there um, at something like the age of 15 or 20, at least so the narrator imagines, and he's pretty clear on that. So she is something like 90 or 95. Claire Claremont herself died at 81, um, so um, this is so Miss Juliana is slightly older than that. 
Um, so we can say she's roughly in her 90s. Um, we don't know, and it's important that we don't know, how old Miss Tina or Miss Tita is. Um, and that's something we'll get back to. Um, but it matters how old she is. Is she in her 60s or is she in her 40s? We can guess that she's somewhere between her late 30s and her 60s, but we can't guess beyond that. And it's partly that sometimes she looks like she's in her late 30s, and sometimes she looks like she's in her 60s. Or, and um, that's what happens at the very end of the novel. For a moment, she's transfigured into youth and beauty in the eyes of the narrator. And then that transfiguration, again, in his eyes, ends. And she becomes, again, the plain, dingy, elderly person. It was in this character, that is, as the plain, dingy, elderly person, it was in this character she spoke as she said, I can't stay with you longer, I can't, and it was in this character she turned her back upon me, as I turned mine upon her 24 hours before. So he knows that he did wrong, and, she, and moved to the door of her room. Here she did what I hadn't done when I quitted her, she paused long enough to give me one look. I have never forgotten it, and I sometimes still suffer from it, though it was not resentful. Um, so she does, she behaves better than he behaved the night before um, when he left, when he was um, found the conditions for getting the papers impossible and left. She behaves better, and he knows it. No, there was no resentment. Nothing hard or vindictive in, more, in poor Miss Tina. For when later I sent her, as the price of the portrait of Jeffrey Aspern, a larger sum of money than I had hoped to be able to gather for her, writing to her that I had sold the picture, she kept it with thanks. She never sent it back. Um, is that how it reads in your version? What's the two-word difference? Okay, so um, that, what do you think the word for means in that sentence? No, there was no resentment, nothing harder vindictive in poor Miss Tina for when later I sent her as the price of the portrait of Jeffrey Aspirin a larger sum of money, or in exchange for the portrait of Je Jeffrey Aspirin a larger sum of money than I hoped to be able to gather for her, writing to her that I'd saw the picture, she kept it with thanks, she never sent it back. What does the word for mean there? Yeah. Well, that's the for, as in, in the exchange. But why does he use the word for as, um, I mean, I'm asking a grammatical question. So here it is again. There was nothing hard or vindictive in her for when I sent her the money, she didn't send it back. So that's the skeleton of the sentence. Why for? What is, what is the word for doing in the sentence? Sorry? It's just yes, and the reason that she thinks he has no, the reason that he thinks she has no resentment is what? What is the reason? She kept the money. That she kept the money. So that's actually a very subtle social interaction that goes on there, that if she really were being hard or vindictive, she would have sent the money back. Now, we know she needs the money, but that's the way spite works. Spite is that you will do something, 
it's, this is actually the biological definition of spite, that you will do something against your own interests in order to make someone else feel bad. Um, I don't want your money um, is a spiteful thing to say. You're indicating to someone that um, you are angry enough at the insult that they have committed, at the bad treatment that they have done, that you're willing to give up something of value simply in order to express your anger. Um, so spiteful behavior is um, its actually a term in economics and in biology, and it is irrational behavior. Um, but it is the way people behave. People will behave spitefully. You know the proverb about cutting off your nose to spite your face. That's the definition of spite. That is, that you um, will do something um, that's harmful and um, painful and irrevocable um, in order to express the fact that you feel contempt for someone or for something. So the narrator gets that, that if Miss Tina were feeling hard or vindictive, she would have sent the money back. Um, but she doesn't. She just sends a thank you note. And it's not she sends a thank you note because she's greedy, as her aunt might have done. She sends a thank you note um, because she is not a spiteful person. Because throughout this novel or novella, she is very much an innocent, not someone like ourselves, to return again to that Aristotelian distinction. Um, she's not someone like ourselves, not, like, not someone like the narrator. She is a person whose misfortune is unmerited because she is an innocent. And therefore, part of the way she maintains the purity of her character, um, and she's not an idiot, as the narrator sometimes thinks she is. She is as deep as Henry James' characters eventually all get. Um, but she is not cruel. And so she's not hard or vindictive, and she receives the money with thanks. That's a great and typically great Henry James sentence. Paying attention to that word for um, tells you a whole lot about his depiction of social interaction. He goes on, the narrator, I wrote her that I had sold the picture, but I admitted to Mrs. Prest at the time, I met this other friend in London that autumn, so he's gone back to London, I met this other friend in London that autumn, that it hangs above my writing table, um, present tense there. And then your last sentence is, say it again, someone read it again, Hannah? Or So when he looks at the portrait, he says, my chagrin at the loss of the letters becomes almost intolerable. He changes that, and often um, Henry James's revisions will be in response to a sense that his readers misunderstood something that he said. So he changes the last line um, in the 1908 version to, when I look at it, I can scarcely bear my loss, dash. I mean of the precious papers. So his, his clarifying, the narrator clarifies, I can scarcely bear my loss. And then he wants to make sure that he hasn't given himself away, perhaps even to himself. So what's the other possibility? If it's not the loss of the papers, what loss might it be that he's denying that he can scarcely bear? Why does he have to add that, or why does he feel he has to add that? Next. Uh, probably a Miss Tina. Yeah. That, 
That is that what's happening is he screwed up really badly. And he can't even admit to himself how badly he screwed up. He made a choice, and his choice was a choice against Miss Tina, who's the most extraordinary person in the book. Um, one, that's part of what's so interesting and typically Jamesian about the book is that a character you think is not going to be the extraordinary person is actually the person the book is about. And it is about Miss Tina and how much she understands and how um, thoughtfully and well and, um, and um, deeply she behaves and how, thought, and how deeply she feels in the situation that the narrator has put her in. The narrator's a jerk, and um, he keeps assuring us that although he's a jerk, he's not as big a jerk as he might have been. Um, he admits that he's a jerk and admits that admitting that he's a jerk isn't enough to save him from jerkitude, um, but he also does say that he's not as bad as he could have been. Um, that there are limits to how jerky even he would be. Um, but he is a character on the borderline of a pretty big jerk and the worst jerk ever. Um, he's right on the borderline between those two things. And on the whole, he retreats from the salvation that Miss Tina offers him. Um, had he married her, had he accepted the fact that he had reasons to fall in love with her. Had he allowed, had he not prevented himself, as he does, from loving her, he could have been a decent human being. Um, to quote Flannery O'Connor, he, he could have been a good man if he'd had Miss Tina to marry him every minute of his life. But he didn't. He screws up. He blows it. And he knows he blows it, but he doesn't want to know that he knows that. Um, and that's part of the subtlety of James's depiction of the narrator. Um, I wanted to give you by way of background, and then we'll look at a couple of other moments, um, the handout that you have. So um, on one side is the short um, lyric by Byron called, So Will No More Go A-Roving. And um, the... Um, Place to look, again, I think this is exactly halfway um, through your book. It's on, in, in my version, it's on page 44 of 88. Um, but a place to look um, in the book is where he says, um, the paragraph begins... And as I say, I think it's halfway through the book. As soon as someone finds it, say what page number it is. Um, he's talking to to uh, Juliana and um, to Miss Tina, and she, he's inviting her to come into the garden to pluck flowers. And um, the old woman, Juliana, says, you must make her come. You must come up and fetch her, the old woman said to my stupefaction. So this should be really exactly halfway through, maybe a page or two before. Um, you must make her come, you must come up and fetch her, the old woman said to my stupefaction. That odd thing you've made in the corner will do very well for her to sit in. So he's built a little summer house in the corner of the garden, and uh, Juliana says, that odd thing you've made in the corner will do very well for her to sit in. 
Yes, no, maybe. Well, I'll keep reading it. The allusion to the most elaborate of my shady coverts, a sketchy summer house, was irreverent. It confirmed the impression I had already received that there was a flicker of impertinence in Miss Bordereau's talk, a vague echo of the boldness or the archness of her adventurous youth, and which had somehow automatically outlived passions and faculties. So here she is, let's say 90, and yet there's this um, interesting impertinence about the way she speaks, a vague echo of the boldness or the archness of her adventurous youth, and which had somehow automatically outlived passions and faculties. So um, that part of her youth it's vaguely echoed now in her extreme old age. Um, and what James is thinking of is this lyric of Byron's, So Will No More Go A-Roving, um, one of his most famous lyrics. So will no more go a-roving, so late into the night, though the heart be still as loving and the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears its sheath and the soul wears out the breast, and the heart must pause to breathe, and love itself have rest. Though the night was made for loving, and the day returns to too soon, yet will go no more a-roving by the light of the moon. So that idea that love ends, that the, heart that the sword outwears its sheath, and the soul wears out the breast, is picked up here in the echo that she had outlived passions and faculties. That what Byron is saying in this beautiful, sad lyric of youth, of their youth, of Claire Claremont's youth and his own youth, um, what Byron is saying in that beautiful, sad lyric, here's the truth of what that means, what Byron is anticipating, but still putting in the mode of beauty by the light of the moon, um, the truth is that here is what you got. Yeah, Maxie. Um, I think it's on 95 and 96. Okay, great. Thank you. So pages 95, 96. So is that halfway through? Yeah, it's about halfway through. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so the other thing on the handout, which I wanted to show you, partly because it's so beautiful and partly because there's no doubt that James is thinking of this poem, is the beginning of a long-ish, not that long, but a long-ish poem by Shelley called Julian and Madelow. Um, and the reason that um, there's no doubt that James is thinking of this poem is that, first of all, what the poem is, it's called literally Julian and Madelow, A Conversation. Um, what the poem is is a conversation between Shelley and Byron. Um, Madelow is Byron and Julian is Shelley. Um, the name Julian is a kind of pun on Shellian, but also a, a reference to the Emperor Julian, who is Julian the Apostate. Um, Julian um, returned the Byzantine Empire um, to um, away from a worship of the Christian gods um, that Constantine had um, had instituted, and he is therefore known as Julian the Apostate, and Shelley was often known as the Apostate because he was 
Shelly got kicked out of college. Just let this be a warning to you. Shelly got kicked out of college um, for having written and published a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism. So it's not like an argument for why atheism might be right. It was an argument for why you had better be an atheist if you had any moral gumption, whatever. Um, so uh, the masters at the college were not happy about this, and he was expelled. And eventually, he went into exile in Italy. Um, in Italy, he and Byron lived in Venice for a while. They became extremely close friends. Um, when Shelley died, Byron said of him that Shelley was the only man he had ever knew, known, or the only person he'd ever known, who was not a brute and a fool and selfish. So <laughs> Byron basically said there was one person worth knowing in his life, and that was Shelley. Um, so Shelley and Byron were very, very close friends, um, although they had strong disagreements about um, morality, about how to treat others. Um, and um, here is an account of what starts out as a conversation between them um, and then turns into um, a long narrative that, set, that takes place in Venice. And one of the people that Julian meets is Madelow's daughter, Allegra, who is Madelow's daughter with Claire Claremont. Um, so she, although in the part we're going to read, she's not there, but she is a character in this poem. At the end of the poem, um, Allegra has grown up, which in real life she did not do. Um, but at the end of the poem, she dies. She died young. But at the end of the poem, she has grown up. And um, Julian meets her and finds out what has happened between the, the, the two days the first half of the poem are about and what happens after he has so dreadful an experience in Venice that he leaves Venice for London, and he stays in London um, for the next 20 years. Yeah, Hannah. I'm a little bit confused. Julian or Madelow uh, Byron? Madelow is Byron. That's why he's Count Madelow in the first line, because it's Lord Byron. Shelley was not a Lord. Byron was. Allegra is Byron's daughter with Claire Claremont, and um, therefore, and Claire Claremont, who is most obviously the model for Juliana. I mean, the, James makes that explicit in the preface to, that he wrote in 1908 to. Um, the Aspirin Papers. He said he got the idea of the Aspirin Papers when he found out that Claire Claremont had only recently died in Venice and that he could have met her had he known. Um, it's not clear he would have wanted to, but it, uh, it stunned him to think that this person from a kind of mythological age of poetry um, 60 years earlier was still around. Um, you know, it would be like finding out that um, some poet that you really, really loved from the 1950s, you know, that E.E. E. Cummings or something um, was still around. Um, Valerie Elliott, T.S. Elliott's second wife, um, died uh, four years ago. Um, so it may, you know, it, it may be as though you had had a chance to meet her and hadn't. Not that you would have wanted to, but because um, you really wouldn't have. Um, she actually had a fight with, or, or Paul Morrison in this department um, had a fight with her about quoting T.S. Eliot in a book of his, um, and she was not nice about it. Um, so at any rate, um, that's 
Allegra is the daughter of Claire Claremont and Byron. She's a character in the poem. The whole poem itself, I believe, is in the Norton, and it's worth reading. Madelo is Byron. Julian is Shelley. Julian, after the events that the first half of the poem depicts, or, the, or actually the first 80% of the poem depicts, um, after those events, he, as he says, urged by my affairs, I left bright Venice. And he goes to London where he claims to have business, and he can't bear to go back to Venice for decades. Um, after he, the poem, the last section of the poem begins, after many years and changes I returned, um, the name of Venice and its aspect was the same. So Venice hasn't changed. He's changed. He's become an old man. He meets Allegra. <laughs> um, she seems to know him, um, even though, of course, he can't recognize her because now she's an adult and she was a child before. And they have a conversation. And she tells him the upshot of what had happened in the first part of the poem. We won't talk about any of this, except to say that it's interesting that something has happened. Um, and um, he, she says, I, I actually don't want to tell you because you're too interested. Um, and you're going to spread rumors. And he says, no, I won't. Just tell me what happened, and I will keep it silent. And the poem ends with... Um, she um, told me all that I wanted. She told me everything. Then the last line of the poet, poem is, but the cold earth shall not know. So um, she tells him the story, as it turns out, of an erotic relationship, how two people met, they parted. She summarizes their relationship. They met, they, they parted. What else do you need to know? But he keeps persisting, so she tells him everything, but he won't tell us. The cold earth shall not know. So there's an unknown. And unknowns in fictional worlds, this is now a little bit of theory. And partly what I want to say is that when you hear the theory, you should understand that, it's a that this is a theory of what makes literature powerful. Um, theory should not make literature seem less powerful. Um, it should make it seem more powerful. The, um, interesting question is what does it mean when there's a fictional world that contains facts within it that we will never know? Since fictional facts, this is what we were talking about yesterday, fictional facts are true only by virtue of the fact that they're narrated. There is no reality that they correspond to. Um, what you could say is there is a last sentence that was the last sentence that Plato ever uttered. And we don't know what that sentence is, but he did say something. There was a last sentence. And we don't know and will never know what that last sentence is. Um, but there is such a thing. For Jane Eyre, for the narrator of the Aspirin Papers, um, those characters are dead, we can say, because people don't live to be 150. Um, and James, it's 100 years, um, like now, maybe next month, um, is the 100th anniversary of James's death. Um, so if people live to be 170, he might still be alive, but they don't. Um, so what the last words that the narrator, who is dead, of the Aspen Papers said, what the last words that Jane Eyre ever said, what the last words that Heathcliff, well, we do know the last words Heathcliff ever said, what the last words of other people are, um, that's a question that doesn't make sense. 
it's not the case that Jane Eyre in her fictional world said something that is true to fiction after the end of the novel. Um, where things get interesting is when something happens in a fictional world, and we know that it happens, but we don't know what it is. And so what we can say now is that we have a vague truth about a fictional world. The narrator tells us something happens, but we also are told that we will never know what it is. Um, she told me how they met and why they parted, but the cold earth shall not know. If you look, um, well, don't look because you won't be able to find it, um, but there is a place in the Aspirin papers where one of the things it turns out is, is in the papers is some scandalous fact about Juliana and Aspern that um, it, it's clear that the papers say something about that scandalous fact, and it's one of the things that you would want to know. Um, what Miss Tina says, I'll just read it to you, is um, that her aunt is very suspicious, um, and the narrator wants to know why. Why is she so careful about what's in the papers, he asks. But she hasn't been made so by indiscreet curiosity, by persecution. Isn't that why she's so suspicious? And Miss Tina or Miss Tita says, no, no, it isn't that, said Miss Tina, turning on me a troubled face. I don't know how to say it. It's on account of something ages ago before I was born in her life. So there's something that's in the papers that occurred ages ago, before I was born, says Miss Tina, in her life. And that's why she's so suspicious. Something, says the narrator. What sort of thing? And I asked, and I asked it as if I could have no idea, which implies that he does have an idea. But he doesn't say what that idea is. Something, what sort of thing? And I asked it as if I could have no idea. Oh, she has never told me, says Miss Tina. And I was sure my friend spoke the truth. Um, so the narrator has a guess, but he doesn't tell us what it is. Miss Tina knows that the papers say what that thing is, but she doesn't know what it is because she hasn't read the papers. The only way we will find out is if we get to read the papers, or at least if the narrator gets to read them and tells us what's in them. But he doesn't because Miss Tina burns them also without reading them. There's so many. She spends all night burning them, but she never reads them. James, just before he died, burned all his letters, by the way, which um, we find a real pity, but he may not. Um, the question whether James was gay or not, um, he was clearly gay. The question um, whether James um, consummated his relationships and with whom um, would have been answered by those letters, but they're gone. Um, Maxie. Go! That's great. Thank you. Page 102. Fantastic. Okay. Um, so that question of what we don't know, that's a question in Julian and Madelow. So Julian and Madelow begins with a conversation um, between Julian and Madelow, and it's amazingly and beautifully evocative of Venice. And so one reason I brought it in was so that you can see um, how Shelley is describing Venice um, 70 years before James is doing so. Um, and they're riding on the Lido, 
that is the beach to which the narrator goes when he goes um, traveling away from the Palazzo on Bordero. I rode one evening with Count Madelo upon the bank of land which breaks the flow of Adria towards Venice. A bare strand of hillocks heaped from ever-shifting sand, matted with thistles and amphibious weeds, such as from Earth's embrace the salt ooze breeds is this. An uninhabited seaside, which the lone fisher, when his nets are dried, abandons. And no other object breaks the waste but one dwarf tree and some few stakes broken and unrepaired. And the tide makes a narrow space of level sand thereon, where twas our wont to ride while day went down. So they would ride at sunset, um, looking east over the Adriatic. This ride was my delight. I love all waste and solitary places where we taste the pleasure of believing what we see is boundless as we wish our souls to be, and such was this wide ocean and this shore more barren than its billows, and yet more than all with a remembered friend I love to ride as then I rode. For the winds drove the living spray along the sunny air into our faces. The blue heavens were bare, stripped to their depths by the awakening north. It's autumn. And from the waves, sound like delight broke forth, harmonizing with solitude and sent into our hearts aerial merriment. So as we rode, we talked. And the swift thought, winging itself with laughter, lingered not but flew from brain to brain. Such glee was ours, charged with light memories of remembered hours, none slow enough for sadness, till we came homeward which always makes the spirit tame. This day had been cheerful but cold, and now the sun was sinking and the wind also. Our talk grew somewhat serious, as may be talk interrupted with such raillery as mocks itself, because it cannot scorn the thoughts it would extinguish. T'was forlorn yet pleasing, and this is one reason I wanted you to see this, such as once so poets tell the devils held within the dales of hell concerning God, free will, and destiny of all that earth has been or yet may be, all that vain men imagine or believe or hope can paint or suffering may achieve, we discanted. So which poets tell of the conversations in hell? Milton, yeah, this is that moment in book two when um, the devils are singing philosophy to each other and getting lost in wandering mazes of um, free will, fixed fate, foreknowledge, absolute. And I, forever still, is it not wise to make the best of ill, argued against despondency. And then this amazing, um, very fast portrait of Byron. But pride made my companion take the darker side. The sense that he was greater than his kind had struck, methinks, his eagle spirit blind by gazing on its own exceeding light. So Byron was so bright that he blinded himself. His pride blinded him. Meanwhile, the sun paused ere it should alight over the horizon of the mountains. Oh, how beautiful is sunset when the glow of heaven descends upon a land like thee, thou paradise of exiles. Italy, by mountain seas and vineyards and the towers of cities they encircle. It was ours to stand on thee beholding it, and then, just where we dismounted, the Count's men were waiting for us with the gondola. It's actually pronounced gondola at the time. 
as those who pause on some delightful way, though bent on pleasant pilgrimage, we stood looking upon the evening and the flood which lay between the city and the shore, paved with the image of the sky. The hoar and airy Alps towards the north appeared through mist, and heaven-sustaining bulwark reared between the east and west, and half the sky was roofed with clouds of rich emblazonry, dark purple at the zenith which still grew down the steep west into a wondrous hue, brighter than burning gold, even to the rent where the swift sun yet paused in his descent among the many-folded hills. They were those famous Eugenian hills, which bear, as seen from Lido through the harbor piles, the likeness of a clump of peaked isles. And then, as if the earth and sea had been dissolved into one lake of fire, were seen those mountains towering, as from waves of flame around the vaporous sun, from which there came the inmost purple spirit of light and made their very peaks transparent. So that's the intro to Julian and Madeleine. Um, and it's beautiful, and a beautiful description of Venice. Okay, we will talk, bring back, bring um, the Aspirin Papers um, and read The Dead, which I will send you um, a link to for uh, Monday. Have a good weekend.